Hello again. You're listening to episode 70 of the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Golf Digest architectural editor Derek Duncan, and my guest for this conversation is architect Lester George. Throughout time, we've tended to look at the legendary designers of the game as the ones that have defined how and where we play golf by creating its greatest stages. This assumption is erroneous. While the courses of Donald Ross or William Flynn or Dick Wilson or Pete Dye, Art Hills, Jack Nicholas, Reese Jones, Tom Doak, and so on and so forth are certainly worthy of deep study, their collected output, as well as that of their nearest name-checked contemporaries, represents a small fraction of all the courses built in the U.S., and therefore, all the courses most of us regularly play. The same can be said for the best-known designers of the U.K. and Ireland, Australia, continental Europe, Asia, and everywhere else. It's far more common that golfers came of age and learned the game on courses designed by people not well-known outside the limited geographic area of where they live. I'm alluding to, of course, the great regional architect, the mostly men who create and created the majority of the courses that serve the needs of the immediate market, but garnered little national fanfare. Jim Harrison in Pennsylvania, Dick Nugent in Illinois in the upper Midwest, Ron Garl in Florida, Ed Alt in the mid-Atlantic states, Dick Phelps in the Rocky Mountain region, George Cobb and Willard Byrd in Georgia and the Carolinas, and I could go on and on. It's neither fair nor entirely accurate to label Lester George a regional architect, but the vast majority of his work exists in his home state of Virginia, and for roughly 30 years, golfers there have happily partook of his design ideas, from affordable public facilities to several of the most ambitious and extroverted courses built this century. George's big break came in the mid-90s when he met the great amateur player and Virginia legend Vinnie Giles, with whom George collaborated on the design of the extravagant Kinlock Golf Club outside of Richmond, the state's number one rated course. George also garnered national attention for his design of Ballyhack near Roanoke, a sprawling and ambitious course with oversized features, canvassing an impressive but rugged property crevassed with streams, ravines, and wetlands. What impresses me about George is his willingness to break form from one design to the next and be searching and daring in the way he presents holes and shot options while still hewing to classic strategic ideals. He came up in the Army, where he was an artillery officer. He made the rank of lieutenant colonel, where he utilized an innate ability to quickly decipher topography. He later put that skill to use in another way as he transitioned into golf design in the late 1980s, when he was in his 30s. Lester and I talk about his relatively late arrival in architecture, how courses like Kinlock and Ballyhack were brought into existence, his love of Seth Rayner, and he scoops us on some very intriguing projects he has in the pipeline. He's an intriguing and interesting guy with a lot of ideas and a lot to say. I think you'll enjoy listening to him talk. So plug in and get to know Lester George. It's a pretty generous give to give up a, an entire room like a living room. It's not like and a it, 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 I'll tell you what, if you could see it, it, it really looks good. Um, we got probably 90% of my of, of what I had in my office in here, and it, it, it really turned out good. So I've got all my collectible books and all my 
course art and all the stuff that I had in my in my in my big office is right here, and it it turned out real well. Yeah, I find that that golf paraphernalia, whether it's books or art or a little you know clubs or little little desk items, actually is pretty good for decor. It looks yeah. it looks a lot better than most designers would assume. Yeah, I've got you know I've got renderings and you know you, I don't know if you can see behind me here, but can you see this this rendering behind me? Yeah, it looks like some kind of elongated building. Yeah. Oh, that, oh, the right behind me. That's uh, that's Frank Lloyd Wright's yeah. Monona Terrace. Okay. But above that, I don't know if you can see. I can't if see I above that. It definitely. Above that that's a nice is, drawing on old. Some kind is, of vellum. Um, okay, that's, that's a, a big blueprint. Reverse blue line of Country Club of Florida done by Robert Bruce Harris. And it's. <clears throat> It's one of my favorites. Uh, it's, it's his grassing plan, and um, so Robert Bruce Harris was a guy that not a lot of people know much about. I think anymore. He was very prominent back in the middle of the twentieth century. Huge. He was one of the big uh, architects yeah. with RTJ and Wilson and some of those other guys. What did you learn about Harris in that project, Country Club of um, Florida? Well, first of all, you know he always had the concept of the of the perfect sequence. Uh, of never playing the same par hole consecutively. And he pulled it off at Country Club of Florida and some other places that he did. Um, and Country Club of Florida is his seminal work. I mean, it is, it is his, his best course by far, I think. Um, and he, he lived out his life there. Um, and it was the first million-dollar contract in golf architecture that we know of because he got $50,000 a year for 25 years. So that'll set you up contract written in 1956. That club was obviously doing pretty well at that time (laughs) to be able to sign on for that. He found the property and he developed the property with uh, Carlton Blunt and he died there in 1970. uh, I'm going to say 1976. Yeah, 1970s uh, money. That that I'm sure that goes quite property. a while. I was lucky to get that job. I was up against all the usual suspects when I went in there, and nobody had ever heard of me in Florida. And um, I just I'm getting ready to renovate it again next year. In fact, we were going to do it this year, but COVID shut us down. Um, so we're going to do it in May of next year. But so what? Just, what did you uh, sell the club? How did you make that impression for them to award you that job? Um, Country Club of Florida is a very unique uh, club. It's very private. There's armed guards at the gate. Nobody gets in. Nobody gets in. Uh, armed. Some unique- wow. <laughs> is it a bad uh, neighborhood? <laughs> yeah. There's, three, there's 150 homes inside the gate. A quick story. Mike Davis called down there two years ago and said, you know, I'm president of the USGA. I keep hearing things like Hidden Gem. I keep hearing it's one of the top 10 courses in Florida, but nobody knows about it. You know, you'd sooner get in Seminole than you can at Country Club of Florida. And he said, you know, I'd really like to come see your course. I hear it's got terrain similar to Seminole and it's got two big sand dunes and I've heard rumors and da, da, da. And so he was on the phone for almost an hour telling me about Country Club of Florida. And I said, yeah, Mike, I've been telling you about it for years. (laughs) He said, I've never seen anything like it. It's got... 
it's got elevation like nothing I've seen in Florida except for maybe Jupiter Hills and Seminole. And I said, yeah, I know. And um, he said, it's, it's, it's perfect. It's the most unbelievable. He said, how did you get that job? And I said, I don't know, Mike. I just went in there and told him the truth. And he said, well, what was the truth? And I said, the truth was it's the best routing I think I've ever seen. It what well, there's, even though it's a, was fashion, you know, Carlton Blunt wanted to, he was a member of Augusta National and he wanted to kind of do winter Augusta. And uh, he came down there and Blunt and Robert Bruce Harris found the property and went to him and said, I found this incredible site in Florida and I'm going to, you know, I want to bring in on it. And Blunt said, let's do it. So he was going to have cabins like they had at Augusta and he was going to have a very unique membership and you know they had the whole Augusta theme going their first general manager left Augusta National to go down there and manage it and Clifford Roberts got messed he got mad about the whole thing and he kicked Carlton Blunt out of Augusta National for soliciting members so it's been tied to Augusta National for its entire existence that's so Cliff Roberts. Yeah, so Cliff Roberts. And <clears throat> so Bruce Harris would get on the train every Friday afternoon and go from Chicago down to New Orleans, where he was working at um, uh, now the name's going to the, the place down there south of New Orleans. And then he'd go over to Country Club of Florida, get, get on the train and go down to Delray Beach, and he worked down there, um, and he just ended up being down there for a long time. And Brent Wadsworth was also sharing an office with Bruce Harris at the time, and there were, you know, there were four or five architects working out of that office, golf architects. Um, um, so. Brent Wadsworth was going to build that golf course for him. And that was one of the first golf courses they ever collaborated on. And so fast forward to 1980 something, Bruce Harris has passed away and it comes time to renovate it. And Arthur Hills gets the job. He does flat faced, you know, almost the three to one side faced bunkers with flat bottoms in them, grasses them all down. There's like 83 bunkers on the golf course and he renovates the golf course. Doesn't change the routing, but of the 80 some odd bunkers on the golf course, you can only see 12 of them when he's finished. Right. Cause they're all grass down. That bunker style was altering what Bruce Harris did. Yeah. Because Bruce Harris did the big, you know, big flying saucer rounds. Yeah. Yeah, huge space bunkers. So in 2004, they finished building a new clubhouse up on top of the hill, and they decided that they wanted to renovate the golf course again. And I heard about it, and one of the people on the selection committee was a guy named Jim Searle, who had run the Greenbrier uh, Hospitality, the CSX Hospitality, um, for the Greenbrier for like 27 years and was the very guy that told me, you know, Lester, you might 
you might want to run up there and talk to them about working on the old white, but they've talked to nine or 10 architects and I'm sure you won't get the job, but you should go up there and at least tell them your ideas about working uh, uh, on the Seth Rayner C.B. McDonald golf course at the old white. So I ran up there and he said, I'm positive you won't get the job, but you should at least try to, you should at least tell them your ideas about the old white. And I ran up there and I got a late interview and I got the job. And it was kind of a joke between Jim Searle and I who had just met that, you know, next time you hear about a restoration or renovation of, or restoration of a classic course, let me know. And I'll, especially if you don't think I can get it. So I called I'll come him in, I'll come in last. <laughs> Just let yeah. me back clean up. Well, it turns out that Jim Searle's father was the guy that left Augusta National as the general manager in 1956 and went to open the Country Club of Florida. Mm -hmm. Jim Searle grew up on the eighth hole at the Country Club of Florida. So I called him up and I said, are you on that selection committee? He said, yes. And he said, but I, and I can probably get you an interview, but I assure you, you won't get this job. Nobody's ever heard of you. And I said, can you get me an interview? And he said, okay, I'll get you an interview. But I got a unanimous vote from the committee. <laughs> so it's become a joke between Searle and I. But the, bo the bottom line was I, I was standing on the 10th tee during my ride around with the committee. And somebody finally said, you haven't said much. And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this property. And I love this rowdy. And they said, well, what do you think of the golf course? And I said, I think it'd be a lot better if I could see it. And they went, wow, that's a powerful statement. What do you mean? And I said, well, so far I've seen about eight bunkers. And they said, well, that's exactly what we're talking about here. And I went, well, if I get this job, you'll see every bunker on the golf course when I'm finished from everywhere. And I said, I guarantee you this place is going to be firm and fast and you're going to see every bunker. Right. Now, you and mentioned you, that, that Robert Bruce Harris originally built large, you, really if giant you, scoop. If you, Google, if you Google right now Country Club of Florida and go to their website, I guarantee you'll see the wildest bunkers I've ever built. Well, I was just going to say, this you didn't day, follow that they, form. You you kind of put your own, they're very, they're much more intricate. The edges are are very uh, lacy they're very and erratic lacy. and jigsaw. They're almost, they're almost uh, you know, they're almost McKenzie. Um, but I just, when I just took a risk. And I went to the committee and I said, uh, look, these aren't Robert Bruce Harris bunkers, but it's Robert Bruce Harris's routing. I'm going to use this template that I have on the wall back here to kind of reinstate his, his strategy. But I'm going to, I'm going to show you bunkers that you're going to see and you're going to be proud of. And when I go in there next year, I'm adding one bunker and I'm changing one bunker, and the rest of them are going to be shelled out, better billy bunkered, and put back exactly as they are. They're, they don't, they won't let me change a single thing. They That's love good. them that much. I want to go so, back to something that you mentioned uh, when we started talking about Country Club of Florida, and that was Robert Bruce Harris's perfect sequence, which basically means that if a par four is followed by a par three, followed by a par four, by then a par five. So there's no two consecutive pars in a row. And I believe at the Country Club of Florida, he even mirrored the par numbers on the front and the back as well. I don't That's know if correct. that was part of his 
what he considered a perfect sequence or not. How important is that, though? What does that do for you personally to not have consecutive par fours or consecutive par fives? Or is that an important? I mean, that was obviously important to, to Bruce Harris, but is that a real legitimate concern? Is that is that is just a novelty, or is it does that actually do something in your mind in the course of playing around? Yeah. Well, as I as I laid out new courses in my career, I mean, I I don't I've never deliberately tried to do a perfect sequence like that, but I I do I'm mindful of the fact that I don't want to get into any kind of a bad rhythm. Uh, I don't want to do four 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 four. I've never done a golf course where I get where I get a monotonous sequence. Uh, and I'm critical of colleagues of mine that have done that. Uh, I think that that you ought to be trying to have a rhythm that doesn't get repetitive. Um, and if I think if you look at Kenlock or you, you look at Ballyhack, I'm always trying to not get into, I, I don't even like three consecutive fours, and I try not to do it. But if the land dictates that that's what you're doing, now I'll try to find, I'll try to find terrain features that that don't get too repetitive. Um, so in the in the in the in the situation of a, a Kenlock, you know, I, I went four four five, um, four three four, three four five on the front. And then four, five, four, five, four, three, four, three, five on the back. I'm being four, three, four on the back. So I, you know, I try to keep a rhythm of holes. I'll look for the terrain features to not be repetitive. And I don't think I've ever done four consecutive fours. No, at, at Ballyhack, four, five, and six are all par fours, but they're very different. I mean, you've got right. four years, a long four that has a downhill kind of cascading effect. Then, right. you know, five goes up over the hog back, then up again to the green, and then six is a short diagonal par four that plays a little across That's the That's a good ravine. point, but originally, the original routing at Ballyhack, six was a par three, mm-hmm. and and seven was the four, and eight was a three. So that that... It, it went um, four was a four, five was a four, six was three, seven was four, and eight was three. When we got out there, the ravine was, once we cleared, we saw that ravine was so steep. And the feature of seven green, which was going to be part of, you know, seven fairway was going to be the par four in there. Once we got nine cleared and nine was such such a steep once we got it pushed away from the road it just six was a wonderful three but seven made such a better three that it was like let's make six the short four the drivable four make seven the three and then bust our way out of the corner with around the sycamore tree mm-hmm. for eight and that that was a that was a field change that just made a better sequence right down there through the valley. And it all had to do with pushing nine fairway over to the stream better. So nine fairway was kind of dictated on that. And it was because of what we had to do to get that slope tied out. 
if, if we'd have tried to widen the bottom nine fairway would have been in my opinion too close to the road and too too narrow for a par five um, so that's kind of what what happened when we opened up that slope uh, up by the road so the original routing there was not three consecutive fours, but it just made just the, the, the width of the wetland and the way we were being constrained by the wetland, there was, a, there was a beaver dam down there by six green and it pushed the wetland back and widened it, which made for the perfect uh, short drivable four there because the wetland was wider where the landing area on six was supposed to be the was supposed to be the green. So it would that that puffed out area where that where that beaver dam widened the wetland just made for such a perfect little risk reward green sitting down there that it just it was obvious once we cleaned out the the all the black briar down there, all the all the black uh, willow that it just it just it just stood out like a like a you know it was it was perfect. So we just said, look, this is this is too good. Let's let's reverse these three. Well, let's and, we're going to uh, continue to get into Ballyhack. Come back to that, but but right. I want to go back into your past a little bit and uh, kind of get to know you a bit more. You you know we're in kind of a, a phase now where a lot of people get into golf design at an early age, whether they're coming out of college, but they they apprentice, they get on machinery, uh, you know, but they start young and they start their education early. You got into golf design relatively late comparatively what were yeah. you doing up until what about the early 90s is when you kind of made a, a career switch what were you doing before that well i was going to be an orthopedic surgeon that's what i went to college to learn i was going to i went to university of richmond and was i got a degree in health and physical education and was going to be a team doctor um, that was what i thought i was going to do uh, and i was going to go to mcv and become a an orthopedic. And then, you know, I was, I was a jock. Um, so uh, I was a gym rat and I, I was, that's, that's what I thought I was going to do. Um, in 1973, when I enrolled at university of Richmond, I also signed on the dotted line, uh, ROTC. My, my dad was a career air force pilot, 34 years in the air force. Um, he enlisted in the army air corps in 1939 um, and never finished it at University of Richmond. Um, so he flew in three wars. And so I kind of grew up in the Air Force. Um, they didn't have Air Force ROTC, so I went into Army ROTC. But the Vietnam War was going on, and that's just kind of – I figured I would spend some time as a as a military doctor and then get out and – go do what I wanted to do. Um, coincidentally, the war ended while I was in college. Um, so there was a glut of about 250,000 officers. Uh, and so, you know, to be what I wanted to be, which kind of changed to get the, I didn't think I was going to go to medical school for the army. So I just went ahead and uh, I didn't want to walk and I didn't want to ride. So I, I thought I would just be a field artillery officer. Then I had a, an aptitude for terrain analysis and reading maps. And, uh, I was on the Orient. I started the orienteering 
club at the University of Richmond, which is running through the woods with maps and it's a big sport in Europe. Um, and I was, so I went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma to be a field artilleryman. And there was a big glut of officers that they were going to get out of the military because the war ended in 74. Um, and I graduated in 77, 78. And I went to my, do my field artillery basic. And while I was out there to keep a job in the army, which I thought I was going to do, um, you had to be in either infantry, artillery, armor, or air defense uh, artillery. And I started playing golf with Orville Moody's relatives, which are all in Oklahoma. Orville Moody winning the 69 U.S. Open was a, you know, one-hit wonder. But there are like 14 PGA professionals in Oklahoma with the last name of Moody. And they ran, the, they ran both golf courses on Fort Sill, the enlisted course and the officer's course. So we got off every day around 2 or 2.30, and I would go to the officer's club course because I was a second lieutenant, and I would play golf. I, got, I just fell in love with the game. And I started playing with all of his nephews and, you know, cousins. And I got good and I got intrigued by the terrain. And, uh, you know, I was playing. But four that, was days that your week. first exp- Had you played golf before that or was that your first really exposure? I played to- golf in high school with my dad at, four, at McGuire Air Force Base. That's when I took it up when I was 18 years old. And then I kind of put it down when I was in college because, you know, I played we would sneak on at the country club, Virginia, cause it was right beside, you know, university of Richmond, uh, at the, at the West Hampton course, which later in life I would renovate. Um, but we would sneak on in the afternoons over there and play, you know, six, seven, eight, and cut back around and play some of the holes at West Hampton. And then we'd play, you know, some of the public courses around Richmond when I was in school, but I didn't play much in college, but I played in high school at, at, at McGuire air force base. Um, in Fort Dix in New Jersey. And then when I went to Richmond, I kind of put it down and, and except for when we were sneaking on, but, but I really got, I got into it at, in the army. And so when I, when I finished my time in the army and I came back to Richmond, we were all put in the reserves. So I was put back in the 80th division, which is an infantry division in Richmond in the reserves. And you had to, you had to give your time that you, you know, spent back. And um, I got back to Richmond and I was like, I don't know if I want to go to medical school. So I didn't. And I started working for the government doing stuff. And um, I I went into the computer systems analysis business and uh, was decided I wanted to go into the golf design business. And I, you know, just read and did as much as I could and chased, uh, chased Algie Pulley, the West coast architect who was born and raised in Petersburg, Virginia. And I was working at Fort Lee in Petersburg. And I knew some people that knew him. And when he was in Virginia, I would follow him around and chase him and call him. And finally in like 1980, Seven, he said, do you want to really do this? And I said, yeah, I do. And I was working at Fort Lee in the information center uh, doing, you know, systems stuff for the government. Um, <clears throat> had become a computer systems analyst and 
he said, well, I'm going to be building some golf courses in Virginia. Why don't you come to work for me? And he, I dropped everything I was doing and went to work for him. And he was paying me less than half of what I was making as a systems analyst. And I dropped everything I was doing and I went to work for him for about three and a half years. And we had the uh, resolution trust and the, the meltdown of the economy and the interest rates, you know, the, the interest rates went to 21% and, you know, we had the, the crash and the boom. And I, he said, I said, what are we going to do now? And he said, well, you can move to California or you can go out on your own. And I said, okay, uh, I'm not moving to California. So I called Ed C at Palmer and, you know, cause they were doing a lot of work in the, in the mid Atlantic, it seemed. And Ed C looked, looked at my resume and he said, you know, you, you've done a lot of stuff in three and a half years. You've zoned property, you've designed subdivisions, you've, you, you've, you've built golf courses with algae. You've, you know, I'd, I'd love to have you, but I just laid off 13 people. He said, let me tell you what, if you go out on your own, go get yourself one job. And in six months, if you're starving, I'll hire you. I'll put you in Europe or Asia or something. Cause I think you're, I think, and plus you're a military guy and I'm a military guy. And I, I like your, I like, I like that you called me. And I said, well, I don't have any work, Ed. And he said, that's, that's not the problem. The problem is I don't have any, anywhere for you. So go get your own, go do your own thing for six months and call me back. And I, I took his advice and I opened my own firm and, you know, he said, and then, and then apply for the ASGCA as soon as you can use whatever you did for algae and get in. I said, well, I'm not going to use what I did for algae. I'm going to do it on my own. And 17 years later, I applied and got in the ASGCA and I bought Ed C a drink and I reminded him of that. And he (laughs) said, I said, you remember 16 years ago? And he said, yeah, I remember. And I said, well, I just wanted to, tell you that that was the best turndown I ever got. And I've often thought that in those 17 years, you've probably built about 200 golf courses and I've built about 30. And he said, what's your point? And I said, well, I, I wanted to buy you this drink and tell you that I'm probably a hard head and an idiot because I should have come to work for you. And I could have built some of those 200 golf courses. And he said, let me tell you something, Lester, you've built about 30. And everyone knows your name and no one knows Ed C because everyone knows Arnold Palmer, but nobody knows who I am. He said, you did it the right way and I'll buy you a drink. And I started crying and he said, see what I mean? Everybody knows who you are and nobody knows who I am and I'm buying you the drink. I said, that's the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me. Well, let's take a second here to, to, let's take a second to talk about Ed C since A lot of people do know him. A lot of people still don't. He was Arnold Palmer's design partner going back into the mid-70s, and he passed away a a few years ago. What was was he like as a person? He was a big guy. He was a gregarious guy. guy, Huge personality. Huge. Um, I'll tell you two quick stories. Um, So my first, my second meeting with the ASGCA, we were on a bus. Uh, This isn't for record. Well, um, we're in a podcast now, so be <laughs> Oh, we are? <laughs> People are listening to this? <laughs> Potentially millions. Oh, my God. Okay, never mind. 
No, you can say it. We, um, obviously, we're recording this. We'll uh, release it. Later. Oh, okay, this isn't live. It's not. It's not live. No. Okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll then I'll clean it up a little bit. We're on a, my second meeting with the ASGCA. Uh, we were on a bus coming back from the golf course, going to the hotel to get cleaned up for one of our dinners. And um, somebody, Ed was sitting in front of me on the bus and another of our colleagues was sitting behind me, another famous architect. And somebody made a comment and Ed made a comment and they got into a little bit of a discussion and it was going sideways really fast. And Ed got red in the face and he decided he was going to punch the guy behind me. And the guy behind me was not going to make it. <laughs> Ed was going to tear him up. And I, Ed stood up and I stood up and I said, Ed, I'm not going to let you hit him. And he said, Lester, I'm going to tear his head off. And I said, no, Ed, you know, this is my second meeting. And I just think that you probably ought to think this through because this is not going to get, this is not going to go well for him. And I know you're going to hurt him and you're going to regret it. And I'm going to regret if I let you hit him. And he said, I'm going to hit him. <laughs> and I can't let you do it because you're too much of a gentleman and you're an officer and you're an officer and a gentleman. And this will ruin your reputation and you'll be mad at me for letting you do it. And he said, you're right. And I'm going to regret it. But I'm going to also thank you later. And, I, and he sat back down and he thanked me for the rest. Every time I saw him for the, for the rest of time, he thanked me for not letting him hit this guy because it, it would have gone really bad for him. <laughs> the other guy should have thanked you mad. too. And I mean, the other thing was that first meeting I was telling you about when we had that drink. And, uh, and he reminded me that I had, you know, I had carved my own path, so to speak. So the, the meeting where I was the newbie and I was in my class, it was 2006, and there were six of us coming in. We had the president's dinner, and he was on the dais, and he made all six of our, our newbie class stand up. And he said, now, you six guys, I want you all to, to – to, uh, if you don't have $100 in your pocket right now to bring it up here and put into the foundation – drop down and give me 20 push-ups. Well, if, if you're a military guy like I was, it was not a problem to drop down and give you 20 push-ups. And I had $100 in my pocket. Well, I dropped down and gave him 20 push-ups just because, because I wasn't going to let somebody not, I wasn't going to not do the 20 push-ups. So I dropped down and gave him 20 push-ups, as did everybody but I walked up and handed him $100 anyway, and he said, see, that's what I'm talking about right there. That's the leader of this class. <laughs> so we always had a very good relationship. And um, he, was, he was a great guy. And, you know, I know you know this, but, you know, he, he, uh, he apprenticed under Ellis Maples. So I think he worked for Ellis Maples for seven or eight years. He got into the business working for Ellis Maples. And I'm currently working on the last golf course, probably the last or second to last golf course he ever did with Ellis Maples, which is Lexington Golf and Country Club in Lexington, Virginia. So he finished that in 1970, and then he went on to work for Arnold. Hey, you know, a lot of people have been wondering where they can find the feature Ron Whitney and I wrote for Golf Digest Issue 8, the 18 greatest holes in America since 2000. I'll tell you. You won't find them at GolfDigest.com. You can only read it in print or in the Golf Digest digital edition available through the Golf Digest app at your preferred app store. You don't want to miss it.
Ron and I break down our selection of the 18 best holes built this century, limiting ourselves to one hole per architect. It was an incredibly difficult task, causing much debate and consternation between Ron and I, and now, even for you, the readers, after we've published it. You can't please them all, but that's not the point. In fact, Lester George even scolds me in this podcast for not putting one of his holes on. The great thing about downloading the digital edition of the magazine is not just this feature story and all the videos and other interactive elements you can't get elsewhere, but you'll have the stories, instruction, equipment pieces, and features at your disposal well after the magazine is in the recycling bin. Unless you're like me, of course, and save those too. So get the app, subscribe, and see for yourself which holes made our list, what holes didn't, and start explaining to us how we're either so smart, so stupid, or mostly some combination of both. But you've got to read the story first. It's in the Golf Digest Digital Edition. Now back to Lester George. So you established your own business in the 90s, and you were working and picking up jobs where you could, building golf courses on your own, figuring it out. Before we get into into the next phase of your career, where did you learn golf design, though? You mentioned you know you worked with Algie Pulley. You also mentioned that you tried to gain knowledge by reading books and, st- and so forth. At that point in time in the early 90s, what was your education in golf design like? Where were you along the line? What were your influences? What were you reading? What did you have access to? Well, I read, of course, I read everything I could. His, historic, I mean, I, mean I've, I think I'm as, I read everything I could, um, you know, McKenzie and Robert Hunter and, 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 all of the George Thomas and everything I could from the history of architecture that I could find that had any kind of illustrations and any kind of strategy, Colton Allison, I read all of that, the the basics, if you will. And then uh, to bring it around, uh, uh, Muir Graves and Cornish and Mm -hmm. Witten and of course, Mike Herzog's book, and and then I would call Cornish, and I Cornish was one of my sponsors in the ASGCA. Uh, Mike Herzog would have been if he had called me back sooner. Uh, he called me back in like five hours, but some other people called me back sooner. So I mean, my sponsors, well, Jeff Cornish was one of my sponsors. So and I went to Cornish and, and Graves's class at Harvard. Um, so. I was doing all this on my own uh, bef- before uh, anything else. And of course, Algy was, you know, Algy was a, uh, was the captain of the golf team at UVA. Algy was uh, a civil engineer that was, you know, that, that graduated from UVA. Algy is a gifted, gifted civil engineer. And I think we're all a product of who taught us. You know, I think, uh, if Pete Dye taught you golf architecture, you better know how to run a machine, right? Uh, because Pete was not a paper and pencil kind of a guy. Algie is a paper and pencil kind of guy. So he's very disciplined at teaching uh, me. Uh, you know, I never took mechanical drawing, but I, but I could draw. I could draw when I met Algie, but I could really draw after I met Algie. Because he made you put it on paper and he made you, you know, understand drawing. And Algie's one of the most gifted um, draftsmen you will ever see. I have, dra- I have plans of his still that are just extraordinary pencil drawings. And so he had a guy working in his, running his shop by the name of Tom Self. 
Tom Self moved to Virginia for three years. And I sat in an office with him for three years. And you better, you better know how to draw. And Tom would look over my shoulder and taught me the technical end of the business. Uh, although I, you know, I think I was, I think I was hired because Algie respected that I could read terrain as well as he could. Uh, and I think he recognized that, uh, you know, if you couldn't keep up with algae in the woods with, with a topo map, uh, completely wooded terrain and, and orienteer through that, through that property as well as he could, I mean, he'd leave you in the woods. If you didn't know where you were going, you could find your way home. So, I mean, I could keep up with him and I could, I could stay with him and, and show him where he was as much as he could show me where, where I was. So. Right. You mentioned, you mentioned that you have a, I don't, maybe I don't want to put words in your mouth, but sort of a special skill or a special ability to read topography and read terrain. Part That's of that I one think is, my, is, is one innate. Of my gifts. Yeah. Right. And, and part of it is, is a gift. And part of it is also uh, married well with your experience being an artillery officer and having to having to map out territories get into that a little bit and tell tell me how that influences the way you design golf courses because i know you like to put plans on paper and and you're very detailed and and the topo maps mean a lot to you and you're talking about how algae pulley was a draftsman and so there's a lot of mapping and a lot of drawing and a lot of detailing out in the design process well you know derek um i think probably 10 or 15, 12 years ago, Lynx Magazine did a thing that was, uh, th- they did an article of the 18 greatest collaborations of all time. And of course, one of them was Bobby Jones and Alistair McKenzie at Augusta. Mm-hmm. And Alistair McKenzie was, a, was, a, was also an Army officer, and he was, you know, heralded as this great um, um, camouflage expert. Uh, and 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 learned how to do expert camouflage as he observed the what he observed in the Boer War, and and I was a camouflage expert because when I left Fort Sill, my first assignment was teaching infantry tactics at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and infantry tactics is all about camouflage <laughs> and moving on a battlefield and keeping things not, you know, not to be observed when you're playing, when you're doing platoon offense or defense. So I taught camouflage at Fort Sill. I mean, at, at Fort Sill and at Fort Bragg, North Carolina for years. And so when they did this 18 greatest collaborations of all time, they did me and Vinny Giles and they compared us to McKinsey and Jones because he was the best amateur player of his time. And I was an infantry camouflage guy. And I don't know who made that. I don't know who bridged that discussion, but that's what they wrote. And it was, it's kind of my ability to look at a topo. The first time I ever saw Kenlock was from a topo map. It was 650 acres of woods with a lake in the middle of it. And so I started my routing, and I've started every routing that I've ever done by looking at a topo. I don't have to go out there and start feeling my way through the trees. I know where I'm going before I get there. I'm going to go look at certain landforms that I know are going to be, you know, 
land moving from right to left with a certain amount of slope to a to a green or T location that I want to find. And I know where I'm headed when I get there because I know what it's going to look like. And that's my ability. So there are certain landforms that I look for in advance of seeing a site. And that's my the way I've done it forever. And it doesn't matter if it's Florida flat or Virginia mountain or Japanese. When I went over and did the thing in Hiroshima, which was on top of a mountain with you know, 3,000 foot cliffs. I know where I'm headed because I've looked it out. I've looked it over and I, I know where, where a perfect green is going to be or where a steep slope is going to be or where a good dog leg is going to be. And in the case of Kinlock, which I knew before I got to the site, I was sent a, a topo by the engineer and I, I told Vinny, I said, this may be one of the best sites I've seen in Virginia. So when we go over there, I'm going to want to go here, 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 and here. And I think this could be really good because Kenlock was originally going to be a daily fee golf course. Wow. Really? Associated with West Creek, which was a 3,400 acre commercial development. That was the owner's intent. And it's wedged in between Country Club Virginia and Hermitage Country Club. So there wasn't really any need for a private club in that part of town or in this in this area. And Richmond Country Club, there were three private clubs within five miles. So it was like, and I said, Vinny, this is so good that it's going to be the best daily fee golf course in, in Virginia if, if it wants to be. And he's not a very good uh, reader of Topo at the time. He's much better now. But it was all wood, so it wasn't like anybody could see it. So I did one routing. We cut the line, which is, you know, surveyed line, four feet wide, walked it. I made one change, and the routing never changed after that. Never changed. It was that perfect a piece of terrain, and I saw it right from the get-go. When you're looking at a topo map and, and envisioning a golf course, are there certain uh, keys or hotspots that you like to find? What are some of the things that you want to see on, an, on a nice piece of property that give you the ability to, to branch out from there and connect a routing? I, I want to see, I want to see T and green location. I want to see green locations. I mm -hmm. want to see, I want to see a good clubhouse location. I want to see ingress and egress to the property. I want to see how I'm going to get, I want to see, of course, that get away from the clubhouse and get back to the clubhouse. I want to see a ninth and 18th that work. And of course, that didn't work at Kinlock because we had this 70-acre lake with a 900-foot dam, and we didn't own property on the backside of the dam. So it wasn't like we could, if I was going to use the lake property properly, I couldn't. Well, first of all, I had a developer that was going to put houses around that. So he said, you can't have all the lakefront. You know that, right? And I said, certainly, I don't want that. That's a Florida golf course. I want a core golf course, and I'm probably going to end up with 9 and 18 on the lake, and they're going to be on opposite sides of the lake. So i got to get across this dam, which I can't play back across. So I'm going to have to get you from 9 to 10T, which is going to be 1,000 feet away, which we figured out real fast. You know, the back nine's going to play back around the lake and the front nine's going to avoid the lake and only have four views of it. So we knew that kind of going away. And there was no way to get into the property 
without corrupting, you know, one in 10. So we knew we had to break at that dam. Um, and that's, you know, we were lucky to get the 30 acre portion of the lake that we got and we negotiated that. But that's after we decided to make it an equity club and the, and the developer said, I don't know how that works, explain it to me, and we did. And, they, and that's when we made it an, a private equity club. So uh, that all had to do with changing the dynamic of how we built the club. Uh, we didn't, you know, we thought we might have 30 national members. Now we got one of the most successful clubs in the country and we have 250 national members. Three cottages, 24 rooms. We did 4,000 room nights last year. Think about that. 4,000 room nights. So Kinlock was really a, probably your big break, right? Your breakthrough project? It, it, yeah, no doubt. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had been in business at that point for 10 years. Um, I routed it in 1995. We opened it in 2001. So it took a while to get that going. But I mean, I had I, I got in business to do renovation restoration because you know, there was no, <clears throat> there was no immediate breakthrough working three years with algae, um, who was again, working on the West coast. And I broke off on the East coast. There was no real name recognition identity. It was just keep, keep your nose to the grindstone, keep doing good renovation, good restoration of historic courses, which, you know, was still, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of hard work. Um, but Kinlock was where the light started to shine. I mean, I had done other projects where, you know, Ocean City Golf and Yacht Club in a resort, which we, we turned a $38 golf course into a $92 golf course, which was unheard of in 1992. Um, in Ocean City, Maryland, that's a very blue-collar resort. $92 was a big damn number. And it was, you know, I had more holes on the water in Pebble Beach when I was done. And they told me, you'll never get these holes out here on the water. And I did. And it was all environmental planning. It was a breakthrough course. The Colonial in Williamsburg was a breakthrough course. And James City County was the first county in Virginia to adopt the Chesapeake Bay ordinances for how to develop in the watershed of the Chesapeake Bay. It was very strict, but we did it. It was the first public golf course in Williamsburg. We did it. Those were all breakthrough projects, but, you know, they took a lot of time to catch on. So, you know, I was doing really good stuff. Um, the, the new course we built in New Braunfels, Texas was 18 holes, 4,700 yards, no bunkers, but big time practice facility, Southwest best practice facility in 1991 and really forward thinking. And the Colonial in Williamsburg had a three hole practice facility. It was the first one in the country. Bingo. I mean, it was all really forward thinking stuff. Yeah, that was all very prescient to be able to do those things. Going back to Kinlock, you, you said you pretty much nailed the routing right away. The whole structures, though, the whole concepts, especially back in 1995 compared to when you opened it in 2001, there's some pretty dramatic 
things going on at Kinlock design wise, strategy wise. You've got split fairways. You've got the night Thank hole, which is yeah, and just the, the night hole is just still a, to this day very complimentary. He thinks Kinlock was a breakthrough golf course in a lot of ways. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and by and, the way, you guys missed. I'm going to scold you on this. You missed eight, 18 best holes designed since 2000. Number 16 at Kenlock. And he said two of the best short par fours in America. And I'm going to kick your ass for missing 10 at Ballyhack, too. Go ahead. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. There was there were some discussions. Um, but at Kin at Kinlock, you, you have, these, have round have, two, eighteen best holes since. Uh, maybe we'll have the uh, yeah the the uh, the second tier. The, uh, I'm gonna kick Witten's ass. Not on the, uh, yeah, take it up with Ron, not me. I am. I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm just getting to know you. But we're gonna go there. So, go but but back in ninety, you had the routing. Did you have the concept for these holes back in ninety five, or did those develop? Because uh, and I'm, uh, give me a second here. What the, what's going on at Kinlock is really is really dramatic. It, it's it's an expression of of artistry. It takes I think courage to design holes like that. It, it's not. It, it definitely stands out. It was a, a breakthrough on some levels. We see a lot more of that type of thing now. But especially if if you, you're talking about that, you started that work on that golf course in 1995. There's a lot of expressionism in that. In that, how did those holes develop? over the course of time, or did you have those concepts coming out of the gate in 1995-96? You know, um, thank you for asking that, and thank you for, and thank you for asking that, because I've, I've never been asked that quite that way, and I know Ron, Ron asked me that last summer. He came to Kinlock and visited again with Vinny and I, so it's an important question, because I found a routing when I started moving my office four months ago. I started cleaning stuff out. I found my original routing to Kinlock, and the second hole wasn't split. But when I started, so when it was a daily fee thought, it was just a normal golf course. But when Vinny and I started discussing, could this be a private equity club and what would make it be a standout golf course and attract a $50,000 membership, which was higher than Country Club of Virginia. We, no, we were going to start at $55,000 to join, which was higher than the Country Club of Virginia. Nobody was going to eclipse the Country Club of Virginia in Virginia. <laughs> <clears throat> so we had a lot of nerve asking that kind of and we got up to $150,000, Derek, before we were done. And I said, Vinny, we got to have bent grass fairways and cool season roughs. And even the USGA said, oh, we, we don't think you can do that in Richmond. The further south you could do that was Robert Trent Jones. So we started doing our study, and we were actually cooler. Average daily temperature, average night temperature, we were cooler, even though we're further south, than Robert Trent Jones because they have the urban bloom. All the concrete up there keeps them hotter. They're further north. So we found that out. We were one to one and a half degrees cooler. So I said, of course we can grow bent grass, but we gotta be wider and we gotta have more irrigation heads. We gotta be wider corridors so if we can have light and air. We cannot have the normal corridor here. So we got 40 acres of fairway at Kenlock. So now when I, when I go back to redesign the golf course and widen it, what the hell am I going to do with all this width? So the second hole became split. The fourth hole split. 
the ninth hole was going to be split from the very beginning because of the creek was just too damn good on both sides. And then we had the dome and we had the half moon, that wetland, all, none of that was built. That was all sitting right there in the woods. And I saw it the very first day I looked at the topo. Then 11 was a single fairway. It had to be split. That's when it started. So I started thinking back to some of the better strategies that I had looked at over my career, which at that time was now 10 years along from 87 to 97 ish. And I started thinking back to some of the illustrations that I'd seen the McKinsey's, you know, the, the hunters, the, the herdsons. And I started thinking, now's my chance to do with wit what I always thought I should do with multiple options. Cause I was the guy that was always intrigued with that and the terrain that I had because Kenlock had this perfect terrain. And I lo started looking tree line to tree line and seeing perfect saddles or streams or if it wasn't a stream a way to drain this thing so that i could do it that way and that's when i started seeing if i'm going to have 400 foot wide holes they can't all be flat and they can't all be just bunkers but they can have obvious strategy and obvious choices that's what started it. And it was all terrain driven. So the second hole had this perfect, if you looked at the terrain from, if it's 350 feet wide and it had this perfect shelf in it. it, the terrain just went like that. And I just said, we'll just bunker the shelf. We'll just bunker the crease. Then you get to four and it had this little creek running right through the center of it. And it was that. So we just cut it in. It's 320 yards. It's drivable. Witten said it was the best short right down. One of the best short par fours in America. And then we get to 15 and it goes up and left. Um, all that terrain was just sitting there. 11 had a creek. It was a ditch running right down the center. All we did was shape the ditch. We had this fairway and that fairway. And then at the end, we had this creek coming in from off property. The ditch ran into the creek. And there was another one coming in from off property behind it. And we had this perfect triangle of a, of a green site, which I, when I first looked at the topo, I always knew that triangle was going to be a green. I didn't know if it was going to be a par four green, a par five green, or a par three green, but I knew that triangle was going to be a green. So it became a 500 yard when I looked at 10 green, and I knew that was that ditch was not going to work to be anything but a par four green. Then I had to figure out if I was going to do another short four and a three or short five, and I made it a short five. So that's how that all worked. It was all terrain driven. It was all how do I get away with not overcooking a bunch of shaping and just making this fit. So when you go to Kenlock, when you come to Kenlock, you will look 
from tree line to tree line and you will see natural grade and everything in between is just shaped. There's no massive earth moving. The only real cut we did was on 18 fairway where we had to get down to the little point on the lake. We took that, we took that hill, it went like that, and we, we bellied it and took that dirt and pushed it forward into the lake to make the green. That's the only real dirt, earth moving we did. The mm -hmm. 16th hole at Kenlock is the greatest natural par four you'll ever see. All of that was just sitting there. All I did was shake the lake. The bluff was there. The ninth hole, the bluff was there. Everything, all of, the 16th hole is one of the best par fours in the world. And it should have been on your list. <laughs> Strike two. Duly anyway. noted, yeah. Anyway, it, it, it was all sitting right there. And when you see it, if you're going to see these two golf courses, Ballyhack and Kinlocker, so much the opposite ends of the brain and the spectrum. Okay, well, we're going to talk about Ballyhack in a second. We're going to switch gears. But one last thing on Kinlock. You, you talked about how the process of creating the golf course and visualizing it and adapting it changed as it became clear that this was going to be more of a, a private equity golf course. How does that, working backwards and envisioning that type of membership, that type of, of player, what they're going to invest to become a member there, uh, people are going to be flying in from a, different parts of the country to play this golf course. There, that raises, a, there's a certain expectation level, I'm imagining, that you're envisioning a product that these people want to see. One of those things I'm imagining would be, you know, just premium turf conditions, premium green conditions, and green speeds. Talk for a second about working with the clientele and how that affects your your uh, shaping or your final decisions, especially on the greens. If you know you're going to want green speeds that are really high, that affects what you can do on the putting surface. I wonder if you could just kind of tie those two thoughts together and explain to people what it was like, at least at Kinlock, how that influenced the shaping of the greens. Well, um, early on, and I spent a long time getting to know Vinnie Giles, and he's been an iconic, uh, almost hero in Virginia for my whole life. I mean, I didn't know him. I knew of him long before I knew him but I've now known him for over 25 years. Um, I used to follow him around the golf course when I would watch the state amateur and I would follow him around the golf course when I watched the state open. Um, and he's just an incredible player. And I think arguably the best player since Bobby Jones, when you look at his record, he's won, everything he should have won and he should be in the world golf hall of fame. And I think he will be one day. Uh, he's won the, the, you know, the amateur, the senior amateur, the British amateur. Um, he's, he's won, he's been on the Walker cup four times. He's captain the world amateur. He's been on the world amateur team. So when I went into business, I went directly to his office and said, you know, Vinny, I'm going to, I'm going to try this. And I'm going to work my butt off. And if you'll just, um, if you'll just um, do, do me, do help me if you can, when you can, because he knows a lot of architects, a lot of friends. Reese Jones, one of his best friends. They've known each other for 45 years. Um, just, uh, just, 
try to say something nice about me if you get a chance. <laughs> Just give me a break if you get a chance. Life, he said, yeah. I'll, do it. I'll do anything I can. So when he calls you up and says, do you want to, you want to design a golf course, Lester, maybe? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. So when you start talking about designing his golf course with him, he could have called anybody. He could have called anybody. I mean, he hired Ellis Maples in the 60s to do wintergreen, the devil's knob for a client. You know, he was in the sports agency business. He was a, he was the agent to 37 or 40 LPG or PGA professionals and dozens of LPGA professionals. So he knows everybody. <clears throat> so when you say, when he says, I'll, let's do this, you get a lot of opportunity and it's, you talk a lot about golf. And so we were very, I was highly aware of what my mission was. And um, all he asked me to do, he never gave me one bit of direction because he said, I don't know anything about how you do what you do. I want greens that aren't silly. I want greens that aren't, and he mentioned a few names of architects that he thought built silly greens. And he said, I, I like classic, subtle, interesting, demanding, but fun greens. I want people to come here and enjoy playing golf on greens that can be tournament caliber ready greens like, and then he named a few examples. And he named a bunch of examples of what he didn't want. So he's the word that I would use were uh, classic, subtle, not carnival greens. Mm -hmm. He didn't. He doesn't like a lot of silly contours and a lot of something that you got over ten and a half or eleven on a stent meter became un, unwieldy. So we spent days months talking about green contours. Um, and we knew that they were going to be the best conditioned greens in Virginia. And the golf course was going to be the best conditioned golf course in Virginia. And it's been three times named the best conditioned golf course in the United States above one down in Georgia. And we didn't know that was going to happen, <laughs> but it is a best conditioned golf course in the United States a lot of times. So those greens have been dialed up to over 15 on the stent meter, which is ridiculous, but it's happened. It's the best condition golf course that you might ever see. <clears throat> and we spend an inordinate amount of money keeping it that way. And that's what people come to expect. If those greens at a place like 20 that years ago had been built with much more than two and a half or three or 4% green slopes in them, they would be unmanageable today. So they are built and were built to understand that they would be tournament condition greens all the time. And so they are very subtle. There are pin placements on them that are very demanding. They were going to have the US Mid-Am there next month, right. um, which got canceled. We've already had the U.S. senior amateur there, and uh, we will probably be in line for something else even later uh, that might be even better. But 
the USGA loves the golf course because of the strategy. They love the golf. They think it's the best match play golf course that's been built in years. <clears throat> and it's all because uh, I had no problem whatsoever in listening to what I think is the best amateur player since Jones and, uh, and uh, giving him all the input he ever wanted and even asking him for more because we never had a contentious word designing the golf course together because he never told me how to design a hole and he never tried to demand anything. And that meant I wanted more from him. And when I said, how would you hit a shot? He would always tell me, but he would never say, this is what I want. He would say, what do you think? And I would say, what do you think? And it would just, it was a perfect relationship. Mm-hmm. So greens, I'm, I go to Vinny with, ideas that I have on other golf courses I'm designing and ask him to this day. I did it last week. I'm designing a golf course right now that I'm doing a restoration on. And I said, what do you think of the strategy of this shot going into this green at this size? Would you split the contour this way or this way as a good player? And I take his advice and listen to it because I have a certain understanding that he's going to give me what a good player would do. And I have to measure that against, in this case, they're going to hold college tournaments on this. And he's still in touch with that good player advice that I would listen to. So what contrasts Kinlock to your, your program for designing and contouring greens at Ballyhack? Because Ballyhack is, is different. It's got a lot of movement in the greens. It's got a lot of variety in the green sizes. Uh, the, the slopes tie into the contours of the site. So what, what gets you from Kinlock to Ballyhack? Where's your mind at Ballyhack? Ballyhack was more... Um, Ballyhack was more... So to finish your, your question at Kinlock, Kinlock was a, an exercise in building a championship classic golf course for a clientele that was rooted in an upscale classical design element um, of the past of a certain client. The client was Vinnie Giles. Ballyhack was uh, influenced of an opportunity to build on a, on a site that was just um, wild and free and over the top when I got there and an opportunity to exercise a scale of a property that was more like a Sutton Bay or a Sand Hills. Um, Streamsong hadn't come along yet. So, I mean, they were, they weren't on the map, but, you know, some of the things that we had seen, being done around other parts of the country that had a little bit more, you know, you can build an 18,000 square foot green at Ballyhack because it was already sitting there. The 18th green at Ballyhack was in a natural punch bowl and it was more of a, that was more of a 
a classical British Isles kind of a concept where you have, you can have a four foot trough in the middle of a green that's 18,000 square feet and pin it. <laughs> and, and it works. You can't pin a four foot trough in the middle of a 6,000 square foot green because it just can't, you can't, it can't work. So there are five greens at Ballyhack that have tremendous movement in them because they're over 10,000, 15,000 square feet. Um, you know, the fifth green, the 18th green, the, the combination of 13 and 15. Right. Um, but then you get the second green and it's got the big mouth in front of it. And then it's, it's, it's 8,000 square feet and it's only got two feet of movement in the whole thing, but it's very subtle. So there are some there are some dicey greens on there, you know, like I said, the fifth, 13, 15, uh, 18. There, there's there's. And then the 17th green has the, the whale tail in it. I mean, that. Those are just opportunities to do something that's more. Rainer McDonald going back to the old the old school where you have some some St. Andrews kind of things going on. And I, you know, I just hadn't had that chance to do that on a site that, you know, you first walk up to Ballyhack and like I said, we did 22 routings because there was so much variety in the terrain that, and we still didn't move a lot of dirt. We still only moved a hundred thousand yards of dirt and it was all shade. I didn't top load a single bit of dirt on that property. No pans, no top loading. It was all shaped. Uh, and it was because it was all kind of out there. This site was 200 acres of orchard grass and fescue when I got there. I mean, there's 375 acres, but we only cleared 40. So um, it was just an exercise in, in trying to do something a little bit more wild. I mean, Derek, I've said Ballyhack is my, um, my, my Ann Margaret flaming redhead versus Kenlock, which is my sophisticated Sophia Loren, you know, mm -hmm. they're just, they're just two different kinds of, of, of beings. And so they are two different sides of the brain. Ballyhack was just wild and, and out there blowing and so, so rugged on the edges. So you get a chance to do something that's rugged. You know, one thing that occurs to me is, is Ballyhack opened in 2009, right when the financial crisis is hitting 2008, 2009. And you're getting, you're getting this opportunity to build on this wonderful site that affords you so many opportunities. It's inspiring you to do something really creative and really pushing it out there, something you never had a chance to do. And now we're in this environment where those opportunities are, are, are so few and far between. And, and when those sites do come up, you know, there's kind of a handful of guys that are typically going to get them unless you're going to go over to, to Asia and, and throw your ring in that hat or someplace else. Do you look back on that as just sort of being, uh, at least being able to look back on that and saying, I had the opportunity to, to build these two golf courses on, in just the way you describe them, two different sites, but two amazing expressions. And a lot of people, especially now over the last 10 years, will never get really a chance to do that kind of thing. That must kind of give you some sort of some pleasure, even though you would love that chance to do it again, I know. Yeah, I, I yeah, I'm fortunate that way. And, you know, um, five years ago, um, Rainbird came to me and said, you know, you we had our ASGCA annual meeting in Bethesda. 
And they said, we want to host 10 architects at Ballyhack and Kinlock. Can you pull it off? Can you get us on both? And I said, sure. So I had past presidents and current presidents and future presidents. And I had, you know, John Sanford and, and Greg um, um, in Chicago, the preserve at Oak Meadows. Martin. Greg Martin. God, he's one of my best friends. So I had Greg Martin and I had um, Rick Robbins and I had, um, you know, I had that crowd. I had Clifton and Ezell and I had, uh, I had this group of architects who'd never seen Ballyhack or Kinlock. And I mean, Greg Martin had an epiphany and he said Ballyhack opened his eyes. He'd never seen anything like it. And, and, and John Sanford said, I've never seen anything like Kinlock. I mean, those guys had never seen either one of my courses, either one of them. They had never seen any of my golf. Rick Robbins had, cause he was one of my friends, but they were like, it, it just almost my stock went up with all my friends. They were like, holy shit, you did both of these. So now Greg Martin and I are collaborating on a, a similar course in Chicago on a, on an old sand mine. It opened his eyes. He went out and found this sand quarry, and he's like, wants to build Ballyhack. And so it, it's really been kind of a, a cool thing for, for him, and we've become very close. We haven't built it yet. But, yeah, you're right. A lot of guys have not had that opportunity, and I got I to gotta tell you, I'm going to send you this some photographs. Uh, <clears throat> I now have an opportunity to build on something that I've, I've never seen, and uh, – I've shown it to Ron. Uh, we have a we have a piece of property um, here in Virginia that has three miles of waterfront with 150 foot cliffs, and it's uh, on the Rappahannock River. It's tied up in a lawsuit right now, but I master planned all thousand acres of it, and it is absolutely it's breathtaking. 150 foot vertical cliffs. It's it's like Torrey Pines, and it's it it comes up out of the water, it goes down the river for three miles, and it disappears. It's wow. like nothing else in Virginia, and um, it's zoned, and it's you know it's it's worth about twelve million dollars, and there's nothing on it but trees, so it's uh, it's going to be. It's going to be stunning, and I think it's going to come out of bankruptcy here in about 90 days, and it's going to come back to us, I think. But mm -hmm. once that happens, I'm going to get a third opportunity that's going to be it's going to it's going to rock the world. That's good. I'm, I'm glad to hear, just world. as a consumer, that there are still some uh, in the continental United States. There are still some potential, potentially dramatic sites and some some places that can be inspiring. Should, I'm going to send you pictures of this place. It is unbelievable. One last thought on Ballyhack. I know you've spoken about this before, and it, amongst a small subset of type of golfer, one of the, the knocks on it is that the, the site is so kind of rugged and spaced out and extreme that it's a tough walk if anybody even tries to walk it. It's, as a, it's impossible. As a designer, what's your thought process on trying to balance that? I mean, obviously, tying holes together in a walkable sense is is an ideal I would think, and mo most designers would agree, but at the same time, if you, in trying to do that, and maybe this didn't, this isn't um, 
pertainable to Ballyhack. But in trying to do that, sometimes you might sacrifice a spectacular hole or some really great golf shots. Is that a, a balance at Ballyhack that you had to make a decision? I can either build a lot of really great, engaging, strategic uh, spectacular holes, or I can try to knit it together and make it flow better, but I'm going to lose a lot of that wow factor. I sacrificed at Ballyhack. I sacrificed. I was not going to sacrifice. I would have lost five incredible vistas and five incredible golf holes if I had to try to make it walkable. Mm-hmm. And I was still lost because by the time I made it walkable, you wouldn't have been able to get out of, out of the bottoms of those holes. So you know, uh, your friend Brad Klein just absolutely hammered me for the walk in the park test um, and said, you know, it's just it's never going to be a top 200 course because which it is now <laughs> in, in whoever took over his ratings. But um, I, yeah, I knew it was not going to be a walkable golf course. I got five members that are maybe 10 now that are decathletes that walk it all the time. But uh, I, I, I gave up on walking um, almost the minute I decided to develop it. I just said, you know what, this is one of those you're going to ride. You're going to ride for the obvious uh, pleasure of just being out here. When you go to the second tee and you stand there and you see that vista, you just you just know you got to ride up there to see that vista. I mean, um, when you come out of the bottom of, of – of four green back up to the top of five T. I mean, there's just no, there's just no not getting there to, I would have had to move a half a million yards of earth to make it walkable. Mm-hmm. And I just would have torn the site up. So I just, I just made the, the early decision that I wasn't going to move a half a million yards of earth to make it walkable. And I would have ended up with a, a crappy golf course. So yeah, I know I get shot up on it, but, you know, in the 11th hole, there's, there was no way to make that walkable. Now, the, the new owners, you know, I sold it um, to the Dormy Network, and it's like giving up your kid for adoption. Um, I hate that I gave up my kid for adoption, but I'm not waking up in the middle of the night with cold sweats anymore waiting on the next cash call. So if you give up your kid for adoption, at least you give it to the richest parents you can find. <laughs> yeah, I, as parents, you know, we all make those calculations. About, huh? <laughs> what? I, just, I was just making a joke. I said, as parents, we all have to make those calculations. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about what I do. But I mean, the, the kid is surviving with the, with, the, with the greatest assets in life. So um, that's the bonus. Uh, but I, I can tell you that... Um, it's in good hands and they're talking about maybe building a walking bridge across 11, which I, 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 I almost want to hate to see because it's going to look like a train trestle, but um, I, I just, okay. So you build a train, so you build a bridge across 11, you build a bridge across 12, you build a bridge across. I mean, if, if they're going to do that, it's going to look like, you know, rolling green and Philly <laughs> have those long ass bridges. You know, I just don't think it's going to be that good. And, and you're still going to have places you can't build bridges. So I just don't know if that's going to work. But, you know, I don't own it anymore. But, the, you know, we did do the little goat track, the little 18-hole par three course where we went up into the mounds and we found these little 300-square-foot tees that we just put in. And people are loving that. 
We open it at 5.30 in the afternoon. You can go out with kids. Members go out there and take a six-pack of beer. And it, the, the shortest hole is 47 yards. The longest one's 163. And it is a blast. You can play three-hole and six-hole and nine-hole and 12-hole. You can play whatever you want. That's Have awesome. you heard of that? No. Have you seen it? Uh-uh. Oh, I've seen it around. It's off the hook. Good. Good. They have drink stations set up out there. The uh, the cottage guests go out there and play. It's it's a blast. This is at Bellyhack. Yeah, just go up in the mounds and there. I, I laid it out with them, and it's all built and it's open, and people are having a blast. You can go out there and spend as long as you want. We we don't let it interfere with daily play, but in the afternoon and evening you can go out there. So you can play ten, eleven, and eighteen, <clears throat> or you can play ten, eleven. 12, 16, 17, 18, go out one, two, six, and come in. You can do whatever you want. They're, they're just so, you know, you go up right of one green and there's a little tee in the mounds and you, it's just a blast. It's, it's cool. It's called the goat track because of, you know, our goats. In our have- remaining time left, Lester, I want to get to one more golf course, and that's Old White at Greenbrier. Uh, you, Thank you. You came in uh, in you know early 2000s or so and really pumped life into that old Seth Rayner, C.B. McDonald golf course. Now then, you know, a flood came through a few years later and wiped it out, and they've had to go back and rebuild some things. But what was that? Tell us a little bit about that project. Um, that must have been a pretty special one for you. It was extraordinarily special. Working for CSX, it took me six years. You can only work at the Greenbrier from about November 1st to Easter because of their patrons. You know, they, they're a resort. Um, again, I was the last guy interviewed, and I went uh, when I got my interview, I interviewed in front of the CSX board. There were like three golfers on the board, and the rest were railroad men. And uh, I explained to them that they were just going to rebuild the golf course kind of the way it was. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You have a Seth Rayner golf course. And it wasn't C.B. McDonald. C.B. McDonald, many people don't know, didn't even show up until opening day in 1915. He never visited the site. Classic celebrity architect. Yeah. Uh, Rayner laid it out. C.B. approved the routing. Rayner built it. it was actually not opened until 15, but they said 1914. Anyway, um, <clears throat> six years, I took out probably maybe more than 3,000 trees uh, and got it back to its original width. Uh, I, found a, I found a brochure um, that was about a 1925 or 24 aerial photograph and uh, blew it up to about four feet tall and eight feet wide and then still used a loop. There was a known elevation on the building. Uh, We knew about what time of year because of the shadows. And I mean, the leaves on the trees were, you know, uh, gone. So we knew about what time of year the picture was taken. We knew about what time of day the picture was taken because of the shadows of the trees. There was a known elevation on the building because of the canopy on the building was the same canopy that was there today. So we measured the length of the shadow and we could translate that shadow all around the golf course from the aerial photograph. And that gave us the depth of the bunkers. And I used that. That's my map reading ability. Yeah, that's very mathematical and uh, scientific. 
I, uh, well, I, I kind of came up with that on my own and I still have that, that four by eight feet mm -hmm. brochure picture, which my friends downtown blew up to scale for me. And I used that to interpret up and down and depth of shadow and, um, and, and angle of everything off of those, those oak trees that were grown by the 18th green. And, um, that's how we interpreted every, every feature on the golf course. And, uh, those that we could restore, we did. Um, and then that gave us, you know, pretty much the earliest known photograph and what was out there. And, you know, Rayner was asked to come back in 24 or five to start making the golf course a little more user-friendly for hotel guests. It was hard. Um, Anyway, I got all that done for CSX and um, opened it in 2006, and it was uh, well-received, and some people said it was the most sympathetic Rainer restoration in the country, and I was very proud of it. Um, but, yeah, it was, a, it was a great project for us, and we did, we, we did really well, but it, it, really, it really stood tall for a long time for us. And to get a to get a nice a really nice property like that that has those kind of that kind of historical architecture on it, and you get to go in and really rebuild it, recreate what what Rainer and I worked did. my ass off on it, and I mean I, there was no hole that was untouched. I had to rebuild all eighteen holes, and you know covers of magazines. We were it was a very rewarding job for us. I mean, and, and it got us, you know, we've done, we also did Cavalier golf and yacht club in Virginia beach, which is banks. Um, we, we were doing Gibson Island in Maryland, which is Rainer right now. Uh, we're interviewing for another Rainer job right now. Um, I'm doing a brand new Rainer golf course in the mountains of North Carolina. Uh, it's a, a, an homage to Rainer. It's got 18 holes plus a nine hole short course, plus a, practice facility all rainer um is, it, is that a new is that a new course or a rebuild brand new it is completely rainer i'll send you the routing you will not believe it it's called contentment um 800 acres of all seth rainer it is off the hook buddy this will be the best seth rainer golf course in the country <laughs> i guarantee you because this particular owner has played every Rainer golf course in the country. Now, are you doing the the ideal holes, or are you doing every your own of versions of those? All 22. I'm building 18 holes, plus the four extra, plus a nine-hole short course, plus a practice facility. I'm building every Rainer hole ever built. Let's, let's follow up that real quickly. So we've talked about Kinlock. We've talked about some other courses, country club of Florida, Ballyhack, all these different types of uh, golf courses, different properties create different uh, whole structures, different strategies. What's, what is your mindset in applying Rainer ideal holes to a site? Is it, how did you decide? I, I know you're reading off the land, but, but placing those holes with the topography of the land is a big part of it. Knowing how to sequence those holes, we've talked about that as a big part of it. Did, did your experience at Old Wide and other courses help you with that? Or, is that, or do you have to get into a different architectural or design space in your mind to be able to work with those template holes? 
I'll tell you what, working at the Old White really, really exposed me to how how genius Seth Rayner was because seeing what Banks did at Cavalier, seeing what Rayner did at the Old White, and then you know, then going and looking at Camargo and looking at Lookout Mountain and looking at Chicago Golf Club, to see how they fashioned those holes at different places and different different ideal terrains. I mean, the difference between Chicago Golf Club and Lookout Mountain, Oof. it's just mind boggling. Yeah. Mm-hmm how clever Rainer was, how genius he was. And so, yeah, when I, just last night, I'm telling you, just last night, I envisioned a Redan hole on a, on a golf course I'm renovating right now. And I started to draw a Redan par three because this club is void of a really, really good 200 yard par three. And I didn't draw it. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't put it in, but the landform was there to put it in. I just didn't do it because there weren't enough holes. Like there weren't enough other holes on the golf course that kind of set it up to be a Redan uh, that they needed a Redan. But it's always in my mind that there could be four or five holes on a golf course that would make me think there are, templates out there that I could use here. So he is probably one of my biggest influences. Everywhere I go, I think this could work, whether I call it that or not, or whether I even tell the club, this is a good Redan hole. The influence of what I'm doing in the, in the design of that hole, if it's already sitting there and it looks like a good Eden, if it's already sitting there, I mean, like a Vestavia country club, which just, one best new course in the country and your boy went and went down there and looked at it. I put a principal's nose in there on the 11th hole and it was the perfect opportunity to put one in there because I needed to split the fairway and I put it in there. It was just a perfect place to put a principal's nose and your boy went and loved it. And, uh, you know, there's just, there, there are always things that they did that, that are in my mind that just come out. They just come out. I bet I've put a principal's nose in more than anybody, any of my contemporaries. I bet I've put in 10 of them. And it started with the old white. It was the first one I ever put in. Was when I did the old white back in 2004, I put in a principal's nose there. And I I, I guarantee I've built nine or 10 of them. I I put one in a country club of Florida. It's a nice feature. It's a it's a nice feature. Um, Gil Hans always hides those in his courses. You know, he yeah. always sneaks them in here and there. It's a it's an interesting thing. Well, well Lester, they're, we can... they're, first of all, they're good looking. Second of all, they do they do a good job of making. You know, if you're gonna, breaking up space, you're gonna have a center line feature. There's not one at Kinlock. Well, there is one now. I mean, there's a bunker that has a toe. There's that has a that has a long nose in it. I didn't actually split it. But it, it looks like one from the from the horizon. But uh, they they often work very well. Well, then we we've, we should probably start wrapping this up, Lester. I'm going to ask you just a couple questions, sort of a, a, a free flow first impression questions. You've mentioned some other contemporaries in this podcast. Who do you think is, and you can't name yourself, okay? So who do you think is maybe the most underrated or underappreciated architect or designer who's working right now? Me. 
Okay. <laughs> one one B would be other than me. Yes, other than you. Um. I always look at this. I, I've asked this to other uh, uh, people on the podcast before. It's kind of a way of paying tribute forward. I, you know, I think Greg Martin is underrated. Mm-hmm. I really do. I think he's very thought-provoking. I think he's very aware of um, a lot of things. He's. I just. I don't think he gets credit for a lot of the things that he does. Um, I think John Sanford is underrated for what he's accomplished. Um, you know, I, I went down and looked at that Naples beach thing. Um, I think he is too. I, I do. Um, beautiful work. He just does some really, you know, and then, and then all of a sudden he pops up in new England mm-hmm. and then he pops up, in New York, that thing at Ferry Point. Right. So I'm doing something in Connecticut right now, and I have to draw. I have to drive across that Whitestone Bridge. When I come out of LaGuardia, I have to go that go through the Bronx and drive across the bridge there. Yeah. I look down at that thing. You know, I know I know Nicholas gets credit for that, but Sanford was the guy the guy that you know he's done the two biggest landfill projects in the country, the the, the Boston. The one in Boston with the big dig mm-hmm. and that thing at Ferry Point. Right. Yep. Totally underrated for his ability to move millions of yards of dirt. So he's one. That's a skill. Yeah. So those are my two okay. those are probably my two answers that come off the top of my head. If I thought about it long enough, I'd probably come up with another. No, those are good. Haven't heard those names come up when I've asked that before. Well, those that's because they're underrated. There you go. That's hence the hence the question. That's the principle of it. Um this is one I ask everybody. What is the best modern golf course you've seen that is not one of your own? One that really got my attention, Derek, was the first course at Sutton Bay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love Sand Hills, but the first course at Sutton Bay before it slid into the river, before it slid <laughs> off the side of the hill. Yeah, that did happen. <laughs> Um, and and it's too bad because I was I was surprised at how good that was. I mean, I really was surprised at how good that was. Mm-hmm. Now, I haven't been back, and I've heard that one's better. Um, but man, that thing was good. You have had some great sites, as we've talked about in Virginia. You've got some more great prospective sites or projects that could be coming up. Where else in the country would you most want to build a golf course? It could be it could be just a region or it could be a specific site you've seen somewhere. I'd like to do something out in the sand hills, I guess. Um, that intrigues me. Uh, I'd, I'd like to do something in a maritime forest in in Virginia. We have a couple of maritime forests down in Virginia Beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course they're all protected. So it's like, it's not likely that that'll happen, but there's, there's maritime forests down. Is that just because the environment is so dramatic to be tucking holes in trees? It's all sand based. So, you know, Cape Henry, uh, over on the Eastern shore of Virginia, there's some maritime forest, uh, over there. It's, 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 
there's still a little of it left that's that's doable that you know that that eastern sh that eastern shore portion of virginia I'd, I'd like to get into one of those this 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 cliffs area that i'm talking about doing is extraordinary that that that's the next great site that i want to work um and i think probably i think i'd like to do something on on probably coastal south carolina or coastal georgia you know, down there, down there in the savannas, the, not Savannah, Georgia, but in the Savannah, Savannas, mm -hmm. you know, something in the Charleston area. Down those barrier those islands. Barrier islands, yep. yep. That, that, that intrigues me. Mm -hmm. Well, Lester, it seems like things have are going well for you. They continue to go well. You've got some, some irons in the fire. It's been a good run. What are your general thoughts on the state of golf course architecture as we close out? You happy with what you see happening around the country? You know, I'm, 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 uh, I'm happy that we're, that we're busy. I'm, um, I'm, I'm anxious that, uh, we get through this pandemic and that clubs get the opportunity to, um, to start getting back into their renovations and there's some interesting ones that are coming. Um, and I, you know, I'm always interested in doing my renovations, my restorations. Uh, there's some interesting historic projects that are coming along. I think if you ever see Cavalier Golf and Yacht Club, it's, you know, it's 18 holes on 83 acres or 85 acres. Wow. It's the best 6150 yard golf course in the United States, I think. And it's all Charles Banks. When I got there, 15 of the original 18 greens were on his on his grades. There's there's elevation zero because it's it's at sea level, but then his greens are at 17 feet and they're like birthday cakes. They're just it's it's just sounds fun. Awesome. So it's his his redan is the 18th hole over water, <laughs> which Sam Snead, you know, lost the Virginia Beach Open there one year on the 18th hole. <laughs> Sam Snead had a way of losing tournaments in fantastic fashion, so that doesn't yeah. surprise me. It's fantastic. So, I mean, it's just like, it's it's just a neat little golf course, a lot of fun. It's got five par threes and only two par fives. You know, it's par 69, but it's just a blast. What's interesting about Lesser George, and this puts him into a select group of company, is that he continues to be able to bridge the old and the new. He's managed to stay busy and relevant over the last decade doing significant renovation and restoration work at many of the clubs he mentioned during this talk. And he's also lined up several potentially explosive new build projects like the course with Greg Martin on a sand mine near Chicago, the development on cliffs overlooking the Rappahannock River, and the sprawling Seth Rayner template hole course in North Carolina. Most of you know my views on replicating template holes. I view it in 2020 as something of a contrivance and more importantly, a missed opportunity to develop unique and original ideas, especially in this environment where it's so devoid of new golf construction. But getting the chance to build golf, new golf on 800 acres in any capacity is newsworthy and nothing to laugh at, and it speaks to Georgia's credentials. Tapping into the spirit of Rainer will undoubtedly be fun for Lester and most likely will produce a great product for the client and it will certainly get most of the golf media to look its direction whenever it opens. 
At any rate, George has already proven his creative side with bold, even aggressively designed holes at Kenlock and Ballyhack and other courses. No one can accuse him of playing safe. And as you heard, he's got plenty of confidence and more ideas where those came from. His work to date speaks for itself. He was a great guest, and that was a very enjoyable and I hope entertaining conversation. I appreciate those of you who have subscribed to the podcast and also those who have reviewed Feed the Ball at your podcast provider site and given the show a rating and review. If you haven't done that yet, please do so. If you're not following me on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Feed the Ball. The Feed the Ball archives at feedtheball.com, boy, I'm saying Feed the Ball a lot, are full of engaging, entertaining discussions like this one with a who's who of contemporary architects and figures from golf. I urge you to explore past episodes under the podcast section. That's it for now. Thanks to Lester George for joining me. Thanks to you all for listening. I do it for you. Thanks to the Sundog for the music. Remember to download the Golf Digest digital app and access all the magazine's features and more. And until we get the chance to do this again, adios. Adios.